Well, guys, we're, we're um, in Matthew chapter 25. If you need a Bible, just hold up your hand and our ushers will bring you a Bible. Matthew 25, make your way there. And we are making our way this summer through the parables of Jesus as we're looking at various parables um, spoken by Jesus. And today we are in the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. They're in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be covering 13 verses today. And uh, it's just been a lot of fun to look at what these parables are saying and the application of them for us today. And so uh, this is an interesting parable. It says right here in verse 1, Matthew 25, that the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins. And you're listening to that going, what in the world Muslim theology is this all about right here? That's not what we're going to be getting into. Don't worry about that here. We're going to look to make some sense of this uh, today. But it says, The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps, and they went out to meet the bridegroom. And now five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise, they took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So, interesting parable. And uh, a lot of people have used this parable to relate it to or to teach on the rapture of the church. And for some, this has been a great proof text for that. Now, let me just say, I firmly hold to a view of the rapture of the church, though I would have to say that this parable is not specifically teaching the rapture of the church. In fact, as you go through this parable, as you look at the context that we're in, especially coming out of Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus in that Olivet Discourse is speaking to his disciples of the things that are to come, and he's referencing that coming again of the Lord, the second coming, which is distinct and different from the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is a, uh, a, a secret thing that pertains to the church, And the second coming is something that's going to be very visible for the whole world. It's when Jesus comes back to this world. And so many would say that this parable is fitting in more so with the second coming of Christ. And and it's not pertaining to the church or the rapture of the church. In fact, there's no mention of the bride, even though we're looking at some very interesting pictures here that we're going to get into There's no mention of the bride. There's no mention to those who are in Christ. The focus, rather, is on what? The the ten virgins or the bridesmaids. And that could be in reference to Israel and more specifically then to the Jews who have gone through the tribulation period and are awaiting the return of Jesus. So that's what it'd be more in reference to. Now don't sit here and think, well, if it's, you know, pertaining to the Jews, well, I'm not Jewish, so I'm just going to get on my phone and start checking out Instagram or something. Don't, don't do that. This is, there's going to be some application here for us, for the church that we're going to glean from and look at and, and uh, be encouraged by. But we certainly see some imagery here that's easy to attach to the church. We have a, a bridegroom on the scene, right? Bridegroom comes. They're, they're all waiting for the bridegroom. The bridegroom comes. Who's the bridegroom? The bridegroom is Jesus. And who is the church referred to oftentimes in Scripture as the bride of Christ? 
So here comes Jesus on the scene, but there's no mention of the bride because the bride is not the focus here of this parable. But the imagery is certainly important. And it's interesting because Jesus often used the picture of a Jewish wedding to relate to things that are to come. So in this parable today, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the picture, verses 1 to 4 here. We're going to get into that in a second. The picture, we're going to see the problem that these uh, 10 versions are facing and then the preparation that is needed. So the picture, the problem, and the preparation. So like I said, the story that Jesus is painting, he often did kind of paint a story or used um, uh, you know, imagery that was very familiar to his audience of that day. And, and in this parable, he's using the imagery of a Jewish wedding. This is what he's referencing here with the bridegroom coming. And it would be something that is his listeners are all like understanding very clearly what he's meaning by these things, even though it's something that's a little more unfamiliar to us today in relation to what a Jewish wedding was actually like. See, in a Jewish wedding, there were three main events that it consisted of. First of all, you had the engagement. Secondly, you had the betrothal, and then you had the actual wedding and wedding feast. So the, the Jewish wedding was comprised of three kind of main events. The engagement, first of all, took place when the, the parents of the bridegroom and the parents of the bride would meet together and be like, you know what, I've got a son, you've got a daughter, I think these two would make a good match, why don't we just bring these two together? You see, arranged marriages was a very main uh, common thing in this day right it's a very common thing in in my home too we all are for arranged marriages and i mean <clears throat> it's not like we're like saying it must be this person but we do have a list for our kids we do have a list that we say we want you to kind of go off of this list and so far the two have done really well <clears throat> They follow along. And it's not like we're rigid on this. We're not saying like, you have to marry somebody on this list. We just say, you know, we're not going to help pay for any of the wedding if you go off the list. But there's no pressure, really, you know, that they have to do that. But arranged marriages are, are quite interesting. But in this day, this is what marriages would consist of. And it was just a common thing. So the parents of the bridegroom and the parents of the bride would meet together and they'd go over the terms of bringing these two together for marriage. And oftentimes that would consist of uh, the price of the bride, a dowry would be paid, an agreement would be made, and that would cover the bride. If anything happened to the husband, she would be cared for and provided for. So all these arrangements would be made. That was the engagement. So now we've got a couple that's like, okay, we've agreed to have these two come together in marriage. The engagement is set. But then would come the betrothal, secondly. And the betrothal was a much more official kind of thing. This is when the couples would indeed come together and they would exchange their vows in the presence of family and friends. They'd all be there. They would have many witnesses that would be shouting out the amens as the, the promises were being made, as the exchange of the vows were happening. And so what's happening is the bride and the groom now in the betrothal, they're covenant, covenanting together. They're, they're covenanting to say, we are linking ourselves together. We are joining ourselves together. And this betrothal could only be broken by divorce. Though they're not fully married yet, this betrothal was an official thing that could only be broken by a divorce. So that betrothal period, interestingly, would last up to a year. 
they would be betrothed. And it'd be a year where the bride and the groom would be separated from each other. How's that to start things off, right? We've made agreement, we've exchanged our vows, but now we're not gonna see each other for up to a year. And what would happen is the groom would go back to his father's house and he would begin to build an addition to the father's house where he and the bride would dwell after their marriage. And you see, that begins to kind of sound a little familiar to it, doesn't it? Because Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples about how he must go and return to the Father, the disciples are freaking out. No, Jesus, you can't leave us. We need you. And what did Jesus say to them? In John 14, verse 23, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, well, believe also in me, because in my Father's house are many, what? Mansions, or as that word is more, dwellings or rooms. In my father's house are many rooms or dwellings, and if we're not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm gonna come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is what Jesus said to comfort his disciples, and it's all fitting in with this Jewish wedding, when the bride and groom would exchange their vows, they'd make a promise, they're betrothed, and suddenly the groom said, sayonara, see you later, and the bride would be like, wait, no, what are you talking about? I wanna hang out with you now, and the groom's like, I'm gonna go, and I'm gonna prepare a place for you, but guess what? I'm gonna come again, and I'm gonna receive you to myself, that we might live now together forever in my father's house. Do you see the picture? It's so wonderful. But now in that time period of up to a year, the bride has no idea when the groom is coming. All right? The groom's like, I don't know how long this is gonna take me. I don't know how long this is. I'm gonna be out of commission here, but I'm gonna be preparing this place. And when I'm done, I'm gonna come and receive it myself. So be ready. Be watchful. Be listening. And when the groom was done and he made his way back to his bride, they would sound the shofar. The trumpet would sound. Just as Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he talks about the rapture of the church, at the sound of the trump, Jesus is gonna come again. The shofar would sound, Jesus would come, along with the, the groomsmen. Remember John the Baptist talked about how he was just the friend of the groom, sounding out the alarm, making the call, preparing people. The groomsmen would come, and they'd be sounding out the call. The groom is coming, and now the bride, with her bridesmaids, these 10 virgins that would be the attendants of the bride are getting themselves all ready, and they'd have their lamps, because oftentimes the groom would come at night. He'd come in the evening time and they'd make their procession back to the father's house in the evening. So they'd all have to have their lamps ready to go, lit and making their way back with the groom and with the whole party. And then they would come back to the father's house. We've seen the engagement. The betrothal happened a year ago. Now the groom comes back for his bride, brings, him, brings her back to the father's house where they enter into the bridal chambers. And there as they enter in the broad chambers, they consummate the marriage. This is when they are now truly one flesh. They've come together, they're married now. And the father is throwing a big shindig. It's a bash for the century. And they celebrate for a week. The marriage supper lasts for a week while the bride and the groom are tucked away in the bridal chamber being waited on and treated like royalty. And after that seven days, the groom and the bride emerge before all their guests together. So wonderful, you see, because what's happening here 
is I think Jesus, in using the picture of the Jewish wedding, is relaying to us some very important truths about end times that all begins with the rapture of the church, you see. Now, interestingly, like I said, the bride and the groom are in the broad chambers for seven days. We as the church are not going to be here in this world during the seven-year tribulation that's to unfold. I think that picture is so wonderful. Seven days, they're tucked away, and then after that seven days, the bride emerges with the groom. What's going to happen when Christ comes back again? Well, it tells us in Revelation chapter 19, it says in verse 7 and 8, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed with fine or in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then in verse 14, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Listen, my friends, those people coming with Jesus in fine linen and coming and falling on white horses is us, the church. We're not on earth waiting for the second coming of Christ. We're coming with Christ at the second coming because we've been with him now for those seven years during the tribulation, just like the bride was for seven days with the groom in the bridal chambers. Wow, that feast was going on. And we're gonna enjoy that great feast in heaven with the Lord. And suddenly we're gonna emerge with him when he comes back to this world after that seven-year tribulation. This is why, yeah, this is why <laughs> I'm excited too. This is why I believe in the rapture of the church. First of all, it fits the imminent return of Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks about that imminent return of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you just go back to a few verses into chapter 24, verse 36, what does Jesus say to his disciples? Matthew 24, verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. No one knows. So listen, if we as a church, and a lot of people say, we as a church are gonna go through the tribulation. If we as a church are going through the tribulation, well, we're gonna begin to see different events happen that Revelation talks about. And, and, and Daniel and Revelation talks uh, and speaks about the different timeline that's gonna happen. You know, 1260 days when you see this happen, countdown. And, and so we can begin to kind of do some math and see if we're in the tribulation, the things that are coming and leading up to the return of the Lord. In other words, you begin to have a bit of an idea. But the rapture fills or fulfills that imminent return of Christ. There's nothing that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture happens. This is the next event on that prophetic timetable of the Lord that's gonna unfold um, at a time when we do not know, when that trumpet is gonna sound and Jesus is going to catch us up to meet him in the air, as 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us, and takes us back to his father's selves where we're gonna be with him for seven years and then come back with him when we emerge in front of the whole world at his side together. Plus, the seven-year tribulation, my friends, is specifically intended for Israel. You see, that seven years fulfills that last week or last seven years of Daniel's 70-week prophecy, Daniel chapter nine. If you don't know what that prophecy is about, just go to our website, look at our teaching from Daniel chapter nine we did a number of years ago, and you'll begin to have a bit of uh, understanding as to what this prophecy is, because it's an important one. And it's a prophecy that was given for God's people, Israel. And so there's one more, the, the 
49, or sorry, the 69 sevens, groups of seven years, has already been fulfilled, but there's one more that hasn't been fulfilled. One more seven years. That's going to be fulfilled during the tribulation when God is going to remove the church. We're living in the church age right now. Israel's been set aside. Understand that. Israel's been set aside, blinded in part. We're living in the church age. It's day of grace as he's gathering all people together to faith in Christ. And when the church is removed from this world, he's going to begin to be directly involved and intervening in Israel again during that tribulation period. That's why the church isn't going to be here again. And, and a lot of people say, a lot of people like to say, well, you know, I believe the Bible says that we're going to go through tribulation. That the church is going to go through trial and tribulation. And they're not wrong. Yes, we are. The Bible says that we're even going to be, you know, having to face persecution. It's not going to be easy. But the difference is that seven-year tribulation is the wrath of God. It's the judgment of God against a christ rejecting world. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, that God's not appoint us under wrath, but to obtain salvation. He will not judge the righteous with the wicked. That's why I believe he's going to capture up and, and take the church out of the way, those that are faithful in him, and he's going to remove us so that he can begin to deal with a Christ-rejecting world. We're not going to be lumped into that. So yes, we're going to go through trial and tribulation in this world, but it's going to be a result of the evil of the world. It's not going to be a result of God's judgment. That's the difference. Those of you that watch, you know, Disney movies, those of you that are not, you know, uh, you know, truly holy and spiritual, and you watch, I'm teasing. Disney movies are, so those of you who watch, every Disney movie, pretty much you watch a Disney movie, and you've got a hero that's doing what? Looking to save the princess, right? Looking to rescue the princess, looking to do something to help the princess. Do you ever see a Disney movie? Has any movie ever been written where the hero of the story is sitting there going, oh, I'm going to save that girl. I'm going to save that princess. But you know what? I'm going to wait a little bit, actually. I'm going to let them kind of, you know, suffer a little bit. I think it might be good for them. I think, they, I think she needs to grow up a little bit. I think this would be really helpful. I'm just going to let her suffer a little bit. And then I'll come and scoop in and save her and rescue her. Have you ever seen a Disney movie? No, it doesn't exist. You'd be looking at it going, that's a terrible hero. Listen, we've got the best hero of all in Jesus Christ, who's not sitting back saying, you know what? I just want them to suffer a little bit. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pour out my wrath and I'm gonna let them experience a little bit of that just so they know how good they get. He's not doing that. He's gonna spare us from his wrath and judgment. Yes, we'll go through tribulation, but God is with us in this world and through the trials of this world, as a result of a fallen world, he's with us and he leads us through faithfully. So there's many biblical references that speak of, again, uh, references that speak of the rapture throughout the Bible. Uh, I firmly believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. That's the stance that we have at Riverside Calvary Chapel. And it's one that fills us with encouragement and hope. Now, as I alluded to earlier, um, this parable, however, <laughs> is not about the rapture. <laughs> so why did we just get into all of that? I have no idea really why we did, but I just thought it'd be good. But here's the thing, is that some people will use this parable even as a proof text of 
a different view, and it's a, a view called the partial rapture view, where some will say, and there's different views of, you know, the timing of the rapture. Some believe in a pre-wrath rapture view where they believe we're going to go through part of the tribulation and then we'll be spared halfway through when the real wrath comes. Some believe in a post-tribulation rapture view where we're going to be raptured up just before Jesus comes again. So we're going to be raptured up and then we're going to come back to them on the side. So we're just kind of like the yo-yo effect. I don't know the point of that. But um, the partial rapture view believes that the rapture is only for those that Jesus is going to come back and ca uh, catch up only those that are truly, you know, spiritual, the real holy people, right? And when I hear that, I go, well, how do I know if I'm one of those people or truly holy enough? You see, that begins to kind of put more emphasis upon, you know, your works and your ability to be saved rather than just being in Christ, which is the key to salvation is, have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Are you in Christ? That's the key. And there's not those that are, well, really in Christ, and there are those that are just kind of semi in Christ. No, you're either in Christ or you're not. He's not coming and picking those that are really on fire for the Lord, and the rest are just going to have to suffer a little longer. That's what some people teach with a partial rapture view. And they'll use this as kind of a proof text to say, look at some of these versions went with the Lord and some didn't. This is not speaking about the rapture, and it's certainly not a proof text of the partial rapture view. So, again, this parable is not necessarily teaching the, the rapture of the church, though I firmly believe in that teaching. So what is this parable really getting at then? That's the question. The lesson for us in this parable is that we are to be a prepared people. A prepared people. We're to be expecting and being ready for the soon and imminent return of the Lord. Now, why did Jesus use virgins kind of as the subject matter here? And why 10? Well, 10 was an important number for the Jews. 10 men were required to form a synagogue in any town. And so 10 was required. In a passage from Rabbi Salomo, he said that 10 lamps or torches was the usual number in marriage processions. So again, tying it into the picture of the marriage, Jesus is using this reference of, of 10. I don't think we need to get too caught up in trying to symbolize 10 or, or symbolize virgins. The, the deal is that there's 10 bridesmaids essentially that are here. Five of them wise, five of them foolish. So what distinguished them? What's the problem? We've seen the picture that Jesus is laying out for this parable. Let's look at the problem now. Look at verse five with me. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept, and at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. Each of these 10 virgins had many similarities. I want you to catch that first of all. They all knew the bridegroom. None of them were like, who's this guy that we're waiting for? Who, what's this all about? They knew the bridegroom. Notice this, they all got tired and slept. The wise ones weren't wise because they stayed awake. They all got tired, they all slept, and they all heard the announcement of the coming of the bridegroom and they all woke up. So they're very similar in these ways. And they all had their lamps with them. They were ready to make this procession back 
to the bridegroom's father's house. They had their lamps. They're ready to go. Outwardly, there was not much that distinguished these 10 virgins. They were very similar in that way. But the difference was that five of them were not ready and prepared for what was to come while five of them were. And the readiness, catch this, the readiness came about by the contents that were within, which was what? Oil. And interestingly, oil is used symbolically throughout Scripture as a picture of the Holy Spirit. See, our being linked to Jesus can only happen through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. That's the only way. Salvation is not mere profession of faith where you can have a lot of people that say, oh, I believe in God. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Yes, no doubt about it. But the difference is not about profession, it's about regeneration. And regeneration comes about through the Holy Spirit at work in your life. And that comes about, no doubt, by faith, but it's simply and truly receiving Jesus and putting on Jesus. A lot of people like to talk about Jesus, but they've not put on Jesus. See, you can have a lot of Christians today that will talk about Jesus, they'll profess Jesus, but you see no evidence of a real changed life. That changed life only comes about through the Holy Spirit coming upon them and, and filling them. And that's something that happens at salvation. Ephesians chapter one, Paul talks about in, in him, you believed and, and trusted in the word and then were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So at salvation, the Holy Spirit is in you. And remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus. When Nicodemus came to him, Jesus said in John 3, verse 5, 6, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and what? Spirit. That's the key, Nicodemus. You got to be born of water. You got to come have a, a physical birth, but you need to have a spiritual rebirth. And that comes about by the Spirit. Unless, he has, unless he's born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, now which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. And then Paul would say in Romans 8, verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, notice that he's not his. Those are strong words right there. Do you have the Spirit of Christ? More so does the Spirit have you. Is the Spirit dwelling in you? Because if you do not have the Spirit, then you don't have Christ. Then you're not truly saved. And that's the picture that's being given here is that there were five foolish virgins that didn't have the oil in their lamps. And these 10 virgins, I believe, like we said, are representing Jews who will come through the tribulation who are expecting to come in and be a part of the kingdom of God. We're awaiting the return of our Messiah, Jesus. When he comes, we're gonna be part of the kingdom. And they're expecting that but the entrance to the kingdom comes about through being connected to Jesus. And five of them are revealing that they're not truly connected to Jesus because they have no oil. There's no spirit in them. They're not regenerated. They've been, they looked apart outwardly just as Jesus is speaking so many of these parables to who? The religious crowd, the Pharisees. He's speaking these parables to them to lay out that what they're expecting regarding the kingdom of God, it's gonna happen in a very different way. Many who think they're going in are not gonna go in because they're not 
receiving the things of God. They're not accepting Christ. They may have thought they have. Uh, they may have all those outward signs, but inwardly they were dry and disconnected. And instead of being ready and watchful, they're preoccupied with many other things, less important things. The foolish ones thought that they could even get what they needed from their friends. They're like, just give us some of your oil. You got enough there? You got enough that'll probably cause your lamps to burn and my lamps to burn until we get to the bridegroom's father's house. They're thinking, just give me some of what you've got. And again, the lesson is clear. We cannot rely on what others have in Christ. This needs to be something that is personal and present for you. You cannot rely even on last year's experience or what you might have once done at summer camp when you were a youth. Tell me about your relationship with the Lord. Well, I remember back when I was like 11 years old, I mean, there was some kind of call at camp, and well, I kind of, I think I kind of gave my life to the Lord, and so, well, you know, we're just kind of going on that. It's not relying upon last year's experience or upon your association with others. Some people think, well, I go to church. I'm surrounded by really spiritual people that seem that they love Jesus, so I guess that's got to help me. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I've grown up in a Christian home. My parents were believers. My grandparents were believers. There's even people that were on the mission field in my family. I'm a shoe-in. I've got to be accepted. Look at my pedigree. Your salvation doesn't come through your association with others. You've heard it said God doesn't have grandkids. This has to be personal and real to you and it has to be something that is presently going on in your life. Is the spirit in you? Are you abiding in and connected to Jesus? That's the key and that's what these foolish virgins were missing out on. That's why I think Paul would say in, in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. And, and what he means there, what he's saying in the, in the Greek is he's saying, be continually filled. Let this be an ongoing process in your life where daily you're just being filled, renewed in the spirit, where you're continually just abiding in Jesus and being connected to him. And when you're abiding in Jesus, then you never worry about your salvation. You never sit there and go, if Jesus came back today, would I, would I make it? I, my friends, I, I, I talk to so many people who profess to be believers, and I ask them, you believe you're going to heaven? Yeah. I said, why are you going to heaven? And they'll say, oh, uh, well, because uh, I try to be a good person. I, I, I try to live a good life. And I hear that time and time again from people who are professing to be believers. And what that tells me, first of all, is that they don't have real assurance. Because their assurance is in the wrong thing. Their assurance is in their works. Their assurance is in themselves to save themselves. It's not in Christ. I, I can say, confidently if somebody asks me are you going to heaven i'm gonna say yes 
I'm going to heaven. Because the word of God tells me that when I've accepted Jesus and I've put on Jesus, then I'm saved. And my salvation is not dependent upon what I do. It's dependent on what he's done for me on the cross. And when I put my trust in what he's done for me, then I'm in him and he is in me. And that's why I'm going to heaven. That's why you can be confident that when he comes, he raptures up the church. I'm not gonna be sitting here going, oh man, I hope I make it. I'm confident because it's what he's done for me. And I'm in Christ. I'm connected to him. I'm abiding in him. Oh, I, I recognize I have days that aren't always great. Days that I blow it. But it doesn't cut me off from my salvation. It might cut me off from fellowship, but that's why we confess our sin, as First John 1 tells us. We confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We, we have our fellowship restored. It's not our salvation that needs restoring. We remain abiding in him. Well, so we've seen the picture. We've seen the problem. These five weren't connected to Christ. They didn't have the oil, the spirit filling them leading them. Let's look at the preparation on verse 10. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the son of man is coming. There's that warning again. You don't know the day or the hour. See, the foolish virgins were shut out because they were unprepared and not ready. And how does one ready themselves? Well, we've, I think we've covered that. You be joined to Christ. Be watching and anticipating his soon return. Be found to be in Christ, abiding in him, and waiting for him to come again. You know, I, I'm kind of shocked to see how it would seem in, in, in many churches today, I don't want to make a blanket statement, so I'm not doing that, but in, in churches today, it seems more and more like prophecy, talk of end times and eschatology, the study of last things. These things are just kind of being dismissed and put aside to where, you know, like, oh, we don't want to talk about that stuff. We're just not sure about that stuff. Revelation, that book is way too confusing. We don't want to cover that here at church. Or it scares people. We don't want to get into that. And more and more you hear these things kind of being dismissed and you hear Christians even almost more so sounding more like the skeptics in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, where they said, where is the promise of his coming? And you hear people talking like, Ah, we've been talking about this stuff for a long time. It's time to just kind of put it aside. You know, I grew up in the church, and I, I grew up, you know, seeing these films that were, you know, given all about the rapture, you know, Mark of the Beast, Thief in the Night. Anybody remember those films? Somebody? Yeah, come on. Those things freaked me out. They did. I'd be lying at, in, in bed at night, and I, that was back when, you know, I was not confident in, in my faith or didn't have that assurance. 
thinking, I, I don't want to miss the rapture. I might miss the rapture. And I'd hear something drop in the kitchen. I'd be lying on my bed, and I, I'd hear something drop in the kitchen. I'd call out, Mom! And she wouldn't answer. I'm like, oh, no, she's gone, and I'm left behind. <laughs> Seriously, that happened to me. Freaked me out. I'm like, no, I missed it. Jesus, forgive me. Back when I was just, you know, immature in my faith. But, but it, it did kind of, but here's the thing, is that was back in like, you know, the 70s. And, and we were talking about these things and excited about these things. And now people go, it's, it's 2021. Man, it's been like 40 years. I, I think it's time to kind of let some of that stuff go. And people start talking like that. And they go, do we really need to keep talking about this? It's what we've always been talking about. Listen, I believe Jesus wants every generation to be living with an expectancy of the imminent return of Jesus. To be living every day. Hopeful. Paul says to the church at Thessal- Thessalonica, to comfort one another with these words. The, the, the view of the rapture and the soon and imminent return of Jesus is to be a hope and a comfort for us, is to encourage us. And what does it say in 1 John uh, chapter 3? That those, are the, 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 those that hope in him purify themselves as he is pure. This causes me to live with an excitement and a joy and to live ready and expecting in the Lord. When I begin to say, ah, prophecy is not pertinent any longer. We don't need to talk about end times, man. I just get comfortable in this world. And I don't want to be comfortable in this world. I want to be living where I'm saying, I, first of all, I want my lamp to be burning brightly, to be constantly on flame, to be a light in this world, to know there's work to be done. But I want to live ready for the return of the Lord. And I believe he's coming soon. And guess what? If I live to be 90 and I'm still waiting, I'm not going to look back on my life and go, man, I sure waste a lot of time with this expectancy of the Lord. I'm going to look back and go, man, I would not change a thing because I want to live every day of my life as though Jesus could come today. And I will not be disappointed if he doesn't because it'll be far worth it and far more enjoyable to live every day knowing that this world is temporal and Jesus is going to come at any moment. He's going to make all things new and I'm looking forward to that. I wouldn't change a thing. Living ready. That's what this parable is saying. Now for the church, we're in Christ. Those that are going to go through the tribulation, they have an opportunity to repent. They have an opportunity to prepare themselves and to be ready. But again, it's all going to be connected to Christ. And these five foolish virgins are expecting to just make it into the kingdom. When Jesus comes back again, he's going he's to usher in the kingdom reign of Jesus physically and literally on this earth for Revelation tells us it's a thousand year reign of Christ when this earth is going to be restored Satan is going to be bound no longer being tempted we're going to live in just a a glorified state it's going to be wonderful and we the church are coming back with Christ in our glorified bodies and people are going to come through the tribulation and they're going to come into the kingdom in their earthly physical bodies people are going to be reproducing it's going to be an incredible time eternity my goodness i just can't wait it's going to be so good but i'm getting sidetracked here but here's the thing that we want to take away today man are you daily just walking in and being led of the spirit are you living lives that are ready and watchful all throughout the word of god the new testament filled with warnings of being ready 
and watchful. First Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter 3. Here in Revelation 3, verse 2 to 3, we read, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. The word Jesus used here for perfect can be scary. We might think, you mean I have to be like perfect? No, I mean, yes, we want to grow in that, but what Jesus, the word he uses here is to be filled, to be filled or, or full. In other words, we need to be full of the Holy Spirit here in the context of this parable. Full of the Holy Spirit in these days in which we live, and we need to be prepared and empowered by the Spirit to live that life for Christ and in Christ and to remain connected to Christ, by which we have that assurance of being with him when he comes again, all right? Worship team, would you come and uh, lead us in a song here? Closing, would you all stand with me as I pray? And after I pray, if you've got kids that are in children's ministry, if you wanna slip out and go and pick up your kids there, um, the teachers would be ever grateful for that. Um, But let me pray. Lord, Thank you for this time together to talk about something that's so exciting. Lord, your return. And we know that as a church, we have the privilege and joy of one day meeting you in the clouds when you come and sound that trumpet and catch us up to be with you and to meet with you in the clouds, to be with you forever and ever. Lord, and then one day we get to come back with you at your second coming and see all that unfold and see your kingdom fully come in finality and physically and literally what a day that's going to be and help us lord to be ready for these things to not get comfortable in this world but to know the temporalness of this world to know that things are not going to get easier in this world we need to cling to you so i pray that you'd fill us fresh and new with your spirit that enables us, Lord, just to live in the empowerment that you give us your spirit to walk with you, to walk in you, and to be found in you, Jesus. Let that be the case for each of us here today. May we continue to just see those lamps burning bright for you in the time that we have here in this world to be a witness. We want to see many more come to know you, Jesus. So lead us on in those things we ask in your name. Amen. Let's sing.